Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Extinction Rebellion shut down five sites in London, including Waterloo Bridge, Oxford Circus, and Marble Arch, to force the government to declare a climate emergency. I sat down with landscape designer Will Sandy and Vanessa Norwood, creative director of the Building Centre, to talk about the impact of the XR actions and what needs to happen. So my name is Vanessa Norwood and I'm creative director at the Building Centre. I've been here a year. Um, Prior to that, I was at the Architectural Association where I was head of exhibitions. Um, I have had the pleasure of working with Will Sandy on a project that we did a few years ago for the British Council in Albania. Uh, yeah, so my name is Will Sandy. I'm a landscape architect and urban designer. I run my own design studio called my name. Uh, it's Will <laughs> Sandy Design Studio, but also I'm the co-founder with Matt Gilchrist of the Edible Bus Stop Studio, which is about more socially engaging projects, working with people to kind of create inclusive and accessible public realm spaces with a focus on food growing in the city. Great. So we wanted to come together to talk about Extinction Rebellion and the major things that have happened in the city and continue to happen actually, um, and, and their intervention. So I think probably a good place to, to start is, um, is kind of with your reactions and, and engagement with, with the actions that took place in London. Mm-hmm. Um, my engagement is, is far more um, removed from Will, and he'll talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. I, for me personally, it just struck me as, incredibly timely and really important. I think in the sort of architectural world, we've been talking a lot about sustainability and circular economy. Um, And I think everything has been very polite up until until now. There's been no urgency. Um, Even with the sort of garden bridge discussions, it feels very removed from anything that we actually have any agency over. So to sort of see the occupation of these sort of key spaces around London, um, to not only to have the architecture revealed and the traffic removed and they suddenly became amazing spaces to be in. Just sort of everything seems to have built up to this sort of critical point where people were ready to listen to what they were saying. So I thought it was really um, a very important moment. Um, So I think going forward, I think we shouldn't lose the energy that they brought to London and to the discussion. And when you look at that, um, the action itself and how it created the sense of urgency, it's surprising that that previous UN report that gave us 12 years or mm-hmm. 11 years yeah. um, didn't create that same reaction in the built environment. I mean, do, we, do we know why that is? Um, I think it's very easy to read things and not be moved in a way that actually sort of seeing people occupying a space and being very audible and visible makes a really big difference, has a really big impact. I mean, I'd read it was 2018, wasn't it? We were given 12 years. And I think you can read a lot of information and it still seems very removed. And even 12 years, you kind of think, yeah, okay, we'll just, a couple of years time, we'll get our act together. And I think the thing that they did brilliantly was to say, this is really important now. And I think their voice alongside um, people like you and the AJ sort of trying to get a conversation going, Um, with David Attenborough as one sort of spokesperson. It's just, it's building up a sort of momentum. And I think now is the time to really make sure we don't lose that, actually, that this conversation does really get going in in earnest. 
So, Will, over to you to talk about your engagement. Yeah, I mean, it's great that we can all read these policies, these kind of big shout-outs. You know, we've got 12 years, that's terrifying. But, you know, it just sits on a shelf in a policy in most kind of offices, institutes, and in government. But actually, for me, I think the Extinction Rebellion activities were necessary. Whether you approve about the way they kind of disrupted the city or not, I think it put it in firmly in the public eye. It transformed the city. You know, it was really well organized. I think don't undermine the way that the strategy behind what they did, but it was the way it was perceived to be quite organic, these simple adaptations of the public realm. It really kind of opened it up with dramatic effect and started to get people experiencing the city in a completely new way, seeing it in fresh eyes and you know, walking down Oxford Street without traffic, seeing children sitting down the central reservation having their lunch, watching children skateboard, adults playing music. I think we're just, you know, it's, it's playful, but it's serious at the same time. We're at a critical point, and if you don't, you know, if you just stick it in a piece of paper in a document, fine. We've declared a climate emergency, but ultimately we need to act. And I think, you know, why we're talking today is as the built environment, we have a key place to sort of affect these changes. Mm -hmm. I think that was the, sort of seeing people, that call to action was really important, wasn't it? Because so I think architecture, we sort of overuse that word agency as well, possibly without actually doing much. And I'm sure I'm totally as guilty as the next woman for, for not sort of um, doing enough to get this conversation going. And I think what was brilliant about seeing everybody come together is that it was very joyous as well. And I think that was, I think, fear and sort of feeling slightly disempowered has created an inertia and I think actually just getting everybody together, listening to music, talking, having conversations, being on the news, being interviewed, I th that was a really key moment. I think these two uh, themes of agency and guilt are really interesting, mm. especially in the built environment, when we yeah. think that um, architects can feel guilty about their involvement, um, but then also uh, they can also, in my view, um, underestimate their agency in in supporting change. Um, but then there are greater people with greater agency who are doing very little. People who run, you know, massive bits of policy. People in government who are not necessarily showing the leadership. So, mm -hmm. which I think probably allows a lot of us to opt out of that yes, agency absolutely. as well. But uh, do you have a view about what do we do with the guilt and the and the shame? <laughs> I think guilt can be um, countered with sort of open discussion and education. So certainly through the public programme here at the Building Centre, it's been really interesting to start piecing together bits of that conversation. So working with DRMM on the Forest of Fabrication exhibition and looking at how timber can be used in architecture and the sort of positive um, effects of timber on health and the way that it can be used uh, to store carbon and I think just having those conversations around a public program we've got some we had really interesting talks about with the public program that allowed us to think about the sort of materiality in architecture and how making a sort of educated choice in our in the material that you use can actually make a difference to our well-being to um, on a sort of smaller scale maybe although incredibly important to a bigger sort of um, scale and importance with climate change so I think we're trying to think about that when we program. And I think by doing, I mean, an exhibition can't change the world and I would never claim that it could, but I 
think by starting that conversation, we are inviting people that are doing really interesting things to be part of it. So we've got a talk coming up with um, Julia Barfield on the mosque in Cambridge. So I think just by sort of putting interesting projects out there and becoming this place where you can have an interesting conversation, I think that's something small, but something that feels like it could be a useful part of the landscape of this conversation. Do you think we need better education in the built environment? You were at the AA. I mean, are, do yes. people understand what they're what they're contributing to? What's happening? I think not. I think education would be an amazing place to uh, be more radical. Actually, I think there's very little um, understanding or sense that you need to think about these things. I think. Unfortunately, the sort of early discussions were incredibly polite around sustainability. And I think people almost became sort of bored of that word because it wasn't ever connected to anything that had a imp more important meaning. It was never connected to danger or peril or 12 years or anything that you would really need to think about. And I think it's education would be a great place to start saying to a sort of younger generation of, of architects in training, what are you going to do? This is your challenge. It's really exciting to actually be radical about this. I mean, the AA had a great tradition of being radical and thinking differently about architecture. And I think we had um, mentioned in an earlier discussion that architects love an extreme brief. And I think actually, if we can engage a whole younger generation of architects in thinking about this is beyond the brief, you know, think think more radically about this, it would be a really great place to start. Well, I think it'd be good in a way to dial back and talk about um, Extinction Rebellion and, you know, who they are, what their demands are and where these actions came from. Because in some ways, for many people, they came out of nowhere. And, um, and this was kind of, they were blindsided by the road shutdowns. And they, in fact, many of them didn't perhaps even acknowledge that they're or may still not acknowledge that there is a climate emergency. So I think, um, you know, who who are these people? Uh, what is it that they're calling for? And, and why did they decide that um, uh, to disrupt the city? I mean, I'm no expert. I'm not, you know, I'm involved to a degree and I play a very small cog in quite a big organization. But, you know, it's all about nonviolent civil disobedience and how we can use that to catalyze conversation. You know, they're, they're, their aims are quite humble. They're quite simple. They're not hard it's you know tell the truth about climate change we're starting to have those conversations now i think that's really exciting reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2025 it's bold but you know let's set that target if we miss it at least we're working towards it if we wait to 2050 then we're you know we're, we're sort of catching up on ourselves and i think it for them to say you know bring it forward by 25 years is, is really provocative and playful but and then this idea of citizens assembly i think advising overseeing change i think that could be something that we bring into projects something that we've done in particular is without knowing what they're called these citizens assemblies but actually talking to the community and going how do you want to use this space that you know it's yours we're just going to facilitate the changes work with the local government local councils landowners key stakeholders but it's yours you know do you want to grow food do you want to have a playground shall we shut this bit of the road you know let's you know start talking like the extinction rebellion let's see how it can be done. Um, I think the idea of rebellion can be quite confrontational to the architects. You know, there was a great conversation last year with the Negroni talks where the subject was, where is, where's, um, where's the punk in architecture? Again, punk in architecture, there's a very, 
very kind of playful in the way that we're quite a timid bunch. But I think ultimately, whether you're rebellious or you're, you're in the built environment, we're all human. And I think we can all start to have these conversations, start to use the skills and knowledge we have to create change. But, you know, that's got to stem from up above. We, you know, I still drive a car. I can't, I've got to get around, you know, until I get more facilities through bigger changes above us to get to where I need to go. Um, it's baby steps, but I think, you know, that's why we're having this conversation. Um, you know, working in Albania, again, they've gone through huge changes. Um, I'm also now working in Venezuela. I think architecture can be a really strong thing. There's political, economic, food shortages, crises. But through clever architecture, you can get back, people back in the streets, having conversations, and start to grow a critical mass to discuss these changes. And I think then full cycle back to these sort of civic assemblies, I think starting to have that agency, returning back to that comment, I think is a really clear and clever way to give people that kind of confidence to make change. I think one of the things that, I mean, I, I've written about is how this, the disruptions at Parliament Square and Oxford Circus, Oxford Street, Marble Arch and um, Waterloo Bridge, although there was one at Piccadilly Circus, but I think that was quite <clears throat> brief. The, um, how that actually got a lot of people uh, who are not engaged with the built environment um, expressing on social media how much they enjoyed not having cars on the street mm -hmm. and how it changed their relationship to, to these places. Waterloo Bridge is like a pretty hideous, tough, noisy, polluted place. So in, in, it's the least garden bridge-like of all of the, the bridges. Um, so it was quite a, a powerful thing uh, to, ha to see that transformed. And I think, um, you know, how has that changed? Do we think the, the citizens' view of, um, of the city as it stands now and what they want it to become? You know, I think, there's, I think it's called tactical urbanism. It's that kind of step-by-step -step process of intervening, creating meanwhile opportunities, these one-day activations. You know, if you look at Islington, for instance, it's the, the, the borough with the least access to green space. They're leading on, a, as far as I understand, a kind of um, play street policy. And I think last weekend was the first Sunday where they're closing a street in a neighborhood in Islington. But as also last Sunday was where Edinburgh have started to close their key streets. And so just making those simple changes, whilst Oxford Street was shut due to the activations of Extinction Rebellion, there was a huge, like, dramatic improvement in air quality. It's there's graphs to, to show it. People have done the stats. Yes, there was a kickback from the business community saying they'd lost X amount of money, but that's one of the wealthiest streets and areas in the country. I don't think they were going to miss out on the opportunity. And the owners of that land do close those streets to create these public boulevards for shopping and, you know, hospitality. So mm -hmm. I think whether XR did it in the right way for the people who normally do it, that's up to up for conversation. But ultimately, if we start to create these public plazas, these streets through changing the hierarchy of the car, that's moving forward at little steps. We've been talking about closing Oxford Street for 30 years. They did it in four hours. Yeah. It was interesting because a couple of weeks before then, Tottenham Court Road had been effectively closed off by the taxi drivers striking and in a lot less joyous way, actually. There were sort of, you know, um, nose to tail taxis blocking Tottenham Court Road. So you couldn't actually, there was no traffic flowing and there were lots of very disgruntled taxi drivers. It was a very different vibe, actually, from Extinction Rebellion. But that hardly got reported on. And it just is interesting, the sort of um, different way of activating 
space. I mean, it was very joyous, Extinction Rebellion. It was, you know, there was music and everyone came together and it was a, a very positive move. I think that streets get closed for all sorts of reasons. And I think that was <clears throat> sort of a ridiculously extreme reaction that people had to that space being shut when it actually does happen from roadworks and other types of protests. Um, so I think it would be really useful to look at cities like Tirana where they've had, they have a day a month now where they close a major square in the middle of Tirana and people cycle and walk and it's, it's all about citizen engagement and control, handing over a city you know, back to the people that live there. And I think that could be an incredible first move if we had a regular car-free day in a major city thoroughfare, because that seemed to be a very powerful statement. And I think pollution is a massive issue in London. And, and as we know, children are dying. Actually, what could be more serious? And I think the lack of conversation about that is quite shocking. I mean, you can get maps now that map sort of pollution hotspots in a city. And I, it's still quite frightening that we're not really taking that seriously. So I think we have a long way to go. And I think the contribution of, of construction to um, air pollution is, is enormous. And mm -hmm. I thought that was quite um, a shock that some weeks ago near uh, in Lewisham, where, near where yeah. um, the child died of um, asphyxiation linked mm -hmm. to her asthma, um, that uh, they recently gave permission to a new residential tower to be built there, even though the planning, the advice on it was that future residents should keep their windows closed because mm. the air quality was so poor. So you think, I mean, how do we give permission to the construction of a tower in a place that is effectively poisoning its residents? And also that kind of assumption, you know, these people will have to leave that building. So even if their windows are closed when they're at home, presumably they're mm. going to be walking uh, to and from places. I mean, n never mind playing outside or having a picnic or any of the normal, mm. um, you know, urban life that you would expect them to have in that neighborhood. So I, f I found that was kind of happening around the same time as the Extinction Rebellion protest. But again, you know, where is the sense of, of urgency if this is a climate emergency and if we know that the health impacts, you know, are so poor? Yes. I mean, maybe we need to be more honest and say our cities are killing us at the moment. And what are we going to do about it collectively? And that sounds... Yeah, I think, um, I think there needs to be more of an inclusive process as well. It's almost like there's the public and the profession and nothing in between. And so you get these misinterpretations. You get, you know, I was having a conversation with a developer the other week and actually what point of interface is there between them? You know, lots of these big developers are announcing that they need to be more transparent, they need to have more accessibility, be more open to public opinion and criticism to develop the project with the local community so it's not about the red line. So within the tower in Lewisham, it's just going, well, we've got this site, we're going up and not considering how it relates or impacts those potentially. Obviously they have you know, a wealth of knowledge and understanding, but talk to the people, manage it in a way that doesn't cause as much disruption whether that's off-site construction, you know, mitigating, looking at where we source our materials. We've got the great timber exhibition upstairs in the building centre right now, which is looking at new ways of building. Um, but I think there's a long, you know, a long lot of conversations to have, but we're using this opportunity to start them. And I think that's, let's not dwell on the past, let's move forward and, and look at the positive um, challenges ahead. I think it's really exciting. Hmm.
So how do we move forward? Where do we start? We start by declaring a climate emergency as a profession, presumably. We start by saying, you know, we're in an unacceptable place right now and the way that we're developing our cities is unacceptable and we are in a toxic environment or an increasingly toxic environment. Mm -hmm. Um, If we look at the immediate risks to each, you know, city or UK cities, we've got kind of flood, heat wave, Mm -hmm. air pollution. We have these these major... um, issues that could be even perhaps over, you know uh, addressed technologically by having you know floodplains etc but moving that to to one side we have an immediate problem which is carbon emissions so uh, if you if we do that not very architectural thing of saying the brief is not about mitigating floods or mitigating um, you know the heat wave or having you know fritting on your glass yes. and all of those things the the brief is now how do you build with the minimum amount of, of carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. That's perhaps a new brief for them because what I hear a lot about is, um, you know, we're going to, um, you know, uh, make it so that the car park parks can flood and then they'll go back, they'll be dry <laughs> yes. afterwards or, yeah. or we're gonna put fritting on the glass or we're gonna put shutters on it or, you know, a lot of these things that are about mitigating mm-hmm. um, the effects of climate change but not actually mitigating Uh, climate change itself. Yes, we don't want to be in a situation where we're designing for climate change catastrophe, do we? That would be really, that would be a very sad outcome. But I think there is an incredible amount of goodwill and there's some really interesting people saying some very educated things about this issue. And I think it is just being more vociferous and getting voices out there. There's a lot of really interesting um, statistics and studies and suggestions about how to build, how to build more minimally with a clever use of material. So I think there's there's cause for hope as well, actually. There's some very brilliant and um, engaged architects saying some really important things. And let's talk about trees and plants and all of those things that landed on Waterloo Bridge and now have gone somewhere. Yeah, so... Um... Matt Gilchrist and a group of the guys from Extinction Rebellion are now coordinating the kind of relocation of these trees. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. Um, if Mac was here, she'd tell you more. But ultimately, it's going out and you know, put, quite literally putting down roots in the communities that might not have been able to come to the bridge or the, uh, the boat or Marble Arch and sort of having those conversations. A simple tree planting exercise with a community can have big impacts. It can start to create the conversations and understand why certain groups haven't been coming to the bridge but you know it's not that they're not aware it's you know it's just the way that the city works they might be working etc um she's already they've already gone out and planted some in the Roding valley i know there's another 20 or so going out across lambeth there's been conversations with the police about them having their own kind of setups and going how do we improve neighborhoods which you're having trouble with you know planting is proven to to change the way people feel about space, reduce crime, kind of get people talking. We've seen it with our work. And through food growing as well, it's really exciting because we all eat. And so it doesn't matter where you come from. A rose bush looks beautiful, right? But you can see that in Regent's Park, but it's almost got a higher body that presents and and, and, uh, maintains it. Whereas if you have a community garden growing food, there's a kind of localness. There's an agency within the community that look after it so people even if they're passing by understand that it's managed by the community whether it's the children the elders so there's a level of respect there aren't any signs that say don't or stop or can't 
it's quite open. And I think it's that level of honesty when you're designing public spaces. And I think with the bridge itself, let's celebrate it. And we've been doing a few projects where you kind of put something in and take it away. And the old ad adage is you don't know what you've got till it's gone. But what if you have something and then take it away? And you don't have to get it right because it's just showing people the potential. So whether the boat was right in Oxford Circus or the trees were right on the bridge, people are now viewing those spaces differently. And I think it'd be really fun or playful to put the bridge or the boat or Marble Arch into the Landscape Institute Awards or the NLA Awards or other kind of built environment awards that think, you know, get people within the industry. They're all there wearing their finery, looking at the be next best thing that's going into D-Zine or the AJ. And these are quite humble, people-driven dri projects. And I think that's where the, the balance can come. And it's putting it in a room and a forum where people kind of understand. And it's giving that level of comfort. Rebellion is quite a bold statement and quite discomforting to those in the industry. You know, They might undo their top button of their collarless shirt, being playful with it. But let's, I think let's just have the conversation. And I think that's what this, this morning's about. But yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting, as I keep saying, but. One of the things I've been looking at, because I've been looking at new urban spaces in the city, and often the landscaping and the, the architecture of this public realm is quite polished and precise and orderly. And I'm, I mean, we, we were talking about how it's a bit like the, the, the room in your house you're not allowed to go into because it's for company. You know, these are very, um, very beautiful often, very p perfect spaces, but um, it doesn't have that kind of come in and play um, and toughness that even the South Bank has actually, and, uh, and certainly the interventions on Waterloo Bridge had where it was like, you know, straw bales and, and some trees and some plants and planters or pots, you know, and that, that just felt quite, um, I guess, robust first of all you didn't feel like you were going to break anything you didn't feel like it was too polished or precious you know and 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 that raised some questions for me about how do we develop the city and it, are we developing you know these kind of pristine front rooms or are we actually making places for people i mean that probably is a fundamental question about how architects think and work isn't it that idea of of a very hard landscaping is is exactly that it's very sort of thought about the materials are very considered and there isn't much room for um chaos and mess because um everything has been specified and looks gorgeous without necessarily wanting any messy greenery or so maybe we need to actually fundamentally think about what makes a city usable and enjoyable to be in and it is that idea that you you're not sitting on your grandmother's armchair that's covered in plastic in case you spill your fizzy pop on it you know we need to make cities more enjoyable and hand them over to children and i think there's some really interesting worldwide projects where cities are actually seen not just as from a citizen's point of view but from a child's point of view and i think in the pictures that was the most joyous thing about extinction rebellions um, taking over of public spaces that kids could suddenly run and make a mess and draw with chalk. And I think there's been some really interesting um, projects about making playgrounds. There's a really interesting charity called Kaboom, I think, that practice in Albania and they make parks are incredibly important. And I think just disrupting the sort of ha hard landscaping of public space and making a playground or making 
a softer area for kids to hang out in and maybe actually not thinking so much about the citizen, maybe preferencing children as a way of activating cities successfully might be a really interesting exercise for us to, to undergo. Are we designing for maintenance or are we designing for um, bees and birds and insects? And... I mean, it depends who you're asking, I guess. You know, it's quite a nice analogy, removing the plastic seat covers of the public realm. Um, you know, it is that. I mean, we're, we are quite precious, I guess, as an in industry. You know, you want that front page of D-zines, you know, like banner poster or whatever, but we forget the people. You know, the people make the place. Um, and you raised that point with the bridge that after a week, a thousand people had petitioned to keep it. I've never worked on a project where someone's done that with a project that we've delivered. You know, it's been great, and the first edible bus stop is still maintained by the community because we engage them, but there's a luxury in that. We spent two years working with the community. And in certain developers, certain uh, governmental bodies are investing that time, but it's not as tangible as handing over a technical drawing. You can't say, this took me four hours, because you're meeting people from all hours of the day, from both sides of the day and night, from different parts of the world, and I think it needs to be that inclusive process. Um, maintenance is always an issue. Security is another issue. We've had huge debates about public seating. Certain people have said we'd rather remove all public seating than actually install them. We always put them in and say, let's have six months. We generally never take them out because it encourages people, you know, more people activating space makes more um, positive behavior. Antisocial behavior comes when there's less activity or less inclusion. That comes back to a much bigger debate about social infrastructure, the investment of the community centers, the divestment over the last few years. That's why we're having these bigger issues. And I think it's proven that if we look at a preventative model where we introduce more green space, more social infrastructure and links between them. So we're not dependent on cars or the cost of public transport. It's, it's connective thinking. And I think we're, we're moving there. We're getting back to it. It's, it's the old fashioned ways, the village green, the low garden fence that you lean on, not the big garden fence that you hide behind. If we break down those barriers and get people talking again, we'll create better places, but it's not simple. I'm not gonna give you all the answers today, but I think Extinction Rebellion broke down some of those barriers and got people talking. And that's a start. If we had, you know, if, if, do we have an idea about what is it about the, the Waterloo? Because they didn't really start a petition to save Marble Arch or, or, or the, even the Pink Boat at Oxford Circus. They, they started it about Waterloo Bridge. So what do we think it was about that site and that intervention that well, was so inspiring for people? We had many, many comments to say that the reason it lasted as long as it did was the trees. What the rationale behind that is, I don't know, but people have a subconscious or you know very conscious presence of trees whether you know that they're benefiting your well-being and the kind of place or not but also perhaps there's a kickback to what was supposed to be the garden bridge and the people going we can do this you know whether they were part of the crew that put the bridge together or part of the people that activated the bridge throughout the week there was this sort of inclusiveness that allowed people to evolve it dictate how it was managed what was going on the stage where the ramp was placed and how it was used. I think that ownership and autonomy of the public space, looking at the garden bridge that was supposed to be, where you were controlled by the amount of people you were supposed to be, it could be closed at any point for a commercial event. Granted, it would have potentially been beautiful, but perhaps in the wrong space. And these guys created it 
for a week in London to give people something to play with. I think that that's perhaps why it stuck in everyone's minds. But I brought my kids to all the sites to to because I in preparation to to write about them, and um, it was really interesting that they connected with the bridge the most. But for them, it was this smooth, big place to ride bikes and scoot and skateboard and, and try on things. And it made me realize, actually, there's no big asphalt place for them to go. That's kind of where other people are, right? Often they're in a kind of gated playground, but even then there isn't like a massive bit of road, you would think, I guess, perhaps the South Bank, but I think the South Bank isn't smooth <laughs> interestingly so it made me think about actually the way that we and and they love the trees as well and the kind of opportunity for um for for kind of sitting on the straw bales and doing some crafts or whatever else was going on there there was more of a family focus as well but this idea um and i saw several wheelchairs actually on the bridge as well which was interesting because i thought well are they protesting they seem to be just people coming to take a look just like everybody else but this idea that um that actually it was a very accessible, very spacious playground, not of the type that we're actually designing for people. I think that's the idea of a bridge though, isn't it? You know, it's a, it's a linking point, but also it's a break in the city, which is why the Garden Bridge was almost a bit obscure in my mind, because you leave the hectic nature of the city and you're confronted by the skyline and the views of St. Paul's looking back and, you know, the song was written about it. And everyone has their favorite view looking east or west. And I think putting a little bit of activity on there got people to stop and enjoy it. You're often just commuting across, heading as fast as you can on your bike to get to your meeting or in the back of a cab or on a bus or running for the train at Waterloo. And I think this got people to stop and think and just be. Because it was in stark contrast to the way we normally um, use sort of public space in London. and. As a parent, you're forced into quite tiny spaces, actually, where you tell your child to. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Milan Skateboard Park, which is great, but tiny and very crammed full of bigger kids running over your smaller kid. And it, they're very controlled, actually, these spaces, because they're a tiny part of public spaces given over to, to play for children and to have that expanse and to see children whizzing up and down on scooters and bicycles is really quite incredibly powerful, I think. And that is that does say something really poignant and kind of awful about how much public space is given over to enjoy the city which you're growing up in. So I think there could be so much more done. And actually to reference Tirana again, only because we've been so often working there, the huge public square that they've created called Skanderbeg Square in the middle of the city is the biggest public space I've ever seen. And it's given over entirely to public use. People dance there when we were there once, people were praying for Eid. And it's incredible to see such a big space given over to public use. Whereas here we have, um, to reference DRMM, we have Hastings Pier. And we've just had the news now that they are, um, going, they've given permission, the council, to convert that amazing public building to amusement arcades, which is telling kids that, as Alistair Riker says, children will learn how to gamble in the dark. So we, we need some, you know, serious political action, I think, on how we're bringing up our children in cities, because more people are moving away, actually, from cities. And I think maybe the Extinction Rebellion, one thing that they did 
So powerfully it was to show actually a space and a city can be for everybody and can be for all generations and people with mobility issues. Yeah, I think you were invited to almost do nothing or do everything. There was, no, there was no rules or kind of allocation of time or space. You could just go and sit. You could just walk across it and enjoy it and, and use it as part of your journey. You could skate around, you could listen to music. It wasn't a defined space. There was no consumption either. You know, a lot of these public spaces now are, you know, a bar or a cafe or a bookshop or something, you, you kind of, Oh, I feel obliged. I must buy a coffee to sit here. With yeah. the garden, with the Waterloo Bridge, you could just sit, and someone would probably talk to you, because it was all about what's going on. It was such a spectacle and so kind of curious that, you know, the organic process that it became over the week. It's just every day was different. Well, if we talk about walking down Oxford Street normally, if you were if you were to shop there, but actually most Londoners avoid it, I would say, like the plague. Um, Walking from Marble Arch after Oxford Circus um, was reopened, uh, I was walking from a pedestrian Oxford Street down to catch the tube. And I went from um, all of the pedestrians having the entire expanse of the road to being funneled onto those pavements. And what are those pavements like in terms of public space? They are horrendous, right? You can't, you're dodging around people. It's very uncomfortable. If you have a push chair, it's a nightmare. But you're basically the slow lane with people flooding around you constantly. It's a very uncomfortable piece. And it, it made me feel quite resentful that I had just been funneled onto these tiny things. It made me think, you know, why, why mm -hmm. is this so unpleasant and uncomfortable you know why do I have to because it doesn't make me want to shop it makes me want to get out of there yeah that's so I felt exactly the same and I think um, the mayor's response was particularly disappointing saying we need to get back to business as usual because business as usual is being um, squeezed onto the pavements while cars and buses sort of hurtle along Oxford Street sort of polluting and and actually being, it's quite dangerous. You know, you see cyclists sort of trying to dodge the traffic. So I think that's why it needs to be sort of a much higher political level just to say, we shouldn't have to live like this. You know, who said that the cars are more important than the people? And who said that that would have to dictate the way that money is made in Oxford Street? That's so short-sighted. And actually, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true. There are ways that a pedestrianised city could be very lucrative, I'm sure. It's almost like we just need to, well, we, we're, we're already having these sort of thoughts and discussions, but somewhere, I mean, as George Mumbert says, it's got to be a sort of much bigger decision to look at the way that capitalism is controlling the way we use our cities. But there must be a more interesting way of getting people to spend money in Oxford Street. That doesn't mean that we're squashed up against the buildings that we're going in and out of. I think, you know, business as usual, fine. But the first few days of Extinction Rebellion's week, Mark Carney comes out, the head of the Bank of England, and says, we need to make a change. Environment is critical. The following day, legal in general. Insurance company say the same thing. If we're not going to listen to them, you know, the heads of finance and insurance, you know, and we're dictated by the shops on Oxford Street and everything else. High streets have got to change anyway. We're seeing high streets across the country emptying and we're having to look at new models of how we kind of create that curiosity to get people back in there. And that must be that 
It has to be event-led. It has to have social infrastructure back into it, whether that's adopted by the commercial operators or not. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with these kind of canyons, just empty shops, kind of. Oxford Street's a destination, so it's unique. But Londoners, as you say, don't go there unless they have to. And they definitely wouldn't drive there. So I don't understand the argument about why they need the roads open. I think there's this sense that you, you do need to make it so that I know if you do shop or if you need to carry something in, you need to be able to catch a bus and you need to be close. Mm -hmm. But that's why we have streets that go the other direction across there, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a way to get you within one block of or so of where you need to get to. So because often I've heard the, the, that the pedestrianization ignores people who actually are blue badge holders or need, you know, need for whatever reason to be close to a method of transportation. But I think we can overcome that. I mean, the tube is incredibly inaccessible, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. stations are redone all the time without them sorting lifts out. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got um, other streets that access onto a, a street that's potentially uh, pedestrianized. You've got um, ways to create a new bus route. So it doesn't seem to me like it's um, I inevitable that uh, you need to keep that, that stretch open. Likewise, for Waterloo Bridge, it was interesting because there were a lot of people who were disrupted by that closure. And then there were other people who just kind of figured it out. Like London didn't really stop. Um, but for the people that were inconvenienced, that's obviously problematic. But if you were to do this, in a, if you were actually to close um, a crossing, you would reroute everything and sort it out, mm. wouldn't you? Like you would for... And there are all sort of clever ways of managing traffic, actually, and having shared pavement space. So the area around... Um, Museum Road and the and the VNA that's become sort of pedestrianised, but cars can use it. And actually, I think they discovered that accidents had dramatically decreased actually because people were more aware of each other. So the spaces around there feel a lot more inclusive. But cars are still there, but there are sort of cafes, and actually the the traffic management I think was very intelligently handled there. So there are ways of of thinking cleverly about how cars and pedestrians can use a space and making them um, sort of coexist safely in a... So I think there, there is definitely potential to not entirely exclude cars or buses, but just to be more creative about traffic management in, in sort of built-up areas. I think it's improving the user experience as well, making the city more permeable. I was reading this morning about creating a network of socially green kind of routes, so they're linking key places. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's points to stop if you know you need to have a sit down. We're you know kick back to removing seats. Let's put more in. You know, the more people who can enjoy the space, the better it feels. So you're not going, oh, I'm walking from Marble Arch to Oxford Circus. I'll get the bus. You go, well, actually, I can stop on the way and enjoy a little pocket park or a parklet or however the space might evolve, and that can be done incrementally, I'm not saying we just sh shut it overnight, but we can start to think about it in a kind of phased approach. So it is comfortable to those who aren't seeing how they can work around it. And that can be done across London, across all the cities in the UK to start to think about introducing kind of catalysts. You know, maybe every city should have an Extinction Rebellion week just to get them thinking differently about the way they use the city. It's disruptive, yes, but if we don't disrupt, we don't talk. And I think that's that's the key. And you talked about Edinburgh as having their one day week. I mean, in a way, maybe maybe we've been taking too long. Maybe just shutting it overnight is 
is the radical thinking that we need, you know, yeah. maybe shutting it. I think that was interesting where in some instances, closing it was enough for people to yeah, exactly. to move into that space and mm -hmm. start drawing and taking it. You know, we didn't need an elaborate 10-year uh, consultation for Oxford Street. It literally just closed and a bunch of people rode their bikes and scooted and... Yeah, and, and London acknowledges we have an air quality problem. And yet, countries, cities around the world, Paris, Bogota, now Edinburgh, Tirana, where we've been working, even Caracas, every Sunday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. closes their main motorway along the, on, along the mountain. People skateboard, BMX, cycle, run. It's, you know, and that's an oil-rich country in a very tricky situation, and yet they consider giving back that back to the, social, the, the population something positive. So I thought it was really interesting in um, hearing a presentation about Hackney School Streets, mm -hmm. where they close uh, streets that access to primary schools between, I think it's 8.30 and 9.15 or something, mm -hmm. and then again in the afternoon. It's a 45-minute period anyway, so mm -hmm. um, in the period that children are traveling to school. And you see pictures, and the kids are scooting and cycling because mm -hmm. the roads are closed. And it's for this very, if you're a resident, I think you have permission to go through, and you're a blue badge holder, you can you can use your, your vehicle, but other than that, they are pedestrianized spaces mm -hmm. for a very limited time. And it was amazing to think about how many people don't let their kids ride or scoot to school because it's unsafe. And that just removes that problem. And you think, well, what if, you know, what if major parts of the city had these timed pedestrianizations where, you know, Oxford Street could be daytime pedestrianized and then it could have a nighttime bus, you know, so that you feel safe if you're going out at night, you can catch, you know, we, we could actually think much more creatively about the city. And I guess this is what the rebellion has enabled us to perhaps think more radically and maybe more simply. Yeah. So we don't need to, to overwork it and create a hard landscaping process. Maybe we just need to close it for a little while. I totally agree. And I think that's where the sort of political will needs to be there to make that happen, whether it's a sort of local level. And I think the really good thing about the recent elections, um, the council elections, there's a, people are now thinking more positively about that. There was a massive increase in green candidates with people um, putting that on the agenda. So I think sort of maybe the local councils need to be more engaged in, in making those decisions. And I think the will and hopefully the groundwork for putting that in place is happening. But I think that would be incredibly positive. So what now? Good question. I mean, I think just people talking about it quite openly. You know, we're not criticizing anyone for doing what they do. We're trying to think positively about what we can do next. You know, I don't, I don't have the answers, but I think we're, you know, the discussion we've just had has, you know, brought up a lot of different information and topics that we can go on to develop. Maybe we need to have forums or events, bigger events, more, you know, more active spaces, whether we did a, you know, a civic assembly and shut Oxford Street again. And everyone came to Oxford Street to experience it. Because if you can't, if you haven't felt it, you don't know what it's like, so you can only go, it's not for me. Whether That's what I said to a lot of people about Waterloo Bridge. I said, just walk across it. You don't have to stop, but just experience it being closed. You don't have to agree with what they've done or how they've done it, or how it's been portrayed in the media, but it's an amazing thing to walk across one of London's busiest bridges and have the whole space to yourself to walk freely, stop, sit, talk, or just literally make your way home. I think little, little gestures like that can go a long way. Yeah, I think it's about education. 
conversation and activation. I think more of the same. We've got to get out there and start bringing together the people that do care and are um, actively part of this movement and just trying to engage people and talk about it. And yes, guilt can be an incredibly good reason for not doing anything. And I think it would be really good to see this as a sort of new start and a very positive one. So what do you say to people who say, actually, I don't feel comfortable taking part in this conversation because I fly or I drive or I'm not vegan or I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not uh, worthy of this discussion because I need to first, you know, do all of these, make all these personal choices. I mean, how do you get them to engage in that conversation? I would say there's always something you can do. You can even just listen or read or talk or vote in a different way or just think about what you can do. There is always something, I think. That, yeah. that would be my, where yeah. I'm going to start with this. I think. Because I'm not perfect. Yeah, neither am I. I mean, I think we're all human at the end of the day. And if we have 12 years to make some form of change, change is one of the hardest things, whether it's someone doing a extension on the back of their house and the disruption that causes or closing Waterloo Bridge or whatever. But this is a huge change and I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but talk, just talking about it or learning a bit more about it and providing that comfort zone to kind of go, you know, all right, I drive, so I'm not perfect. But if we all start acting with our feet, the people at the top will have to start making those changes for us, making trains more affordable, you know, I was saying the other day that, you know, we've got the guys who are doing the mass civil disruption at the top. Then I have find out there's a guy campaigning to bring back plastic straws in McDonald's. And I said, well, you know, th these are the extremities. And I think a lot of the people in the built environment are probably in the top 25% who really are trying to make a change. And it's involving everyone else and going, you don't need the straws, mate. It's fine. Um, let's think about the bigger picture. You might have children or grandchildren. And just changing that kind of consciousness. He's probably not aware of what his straw does. He just thinks it's a great way to get, enjoy his milkshake because he's got, you know, busy job or whatever. You know, we've all got hard lives and, you know, you've got to do your little bit. And Milkshakes have become very politicised. Oh, true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that's it. You need leadership, right? So we need, yeah. where, I think it's coming to a point where a lot of the people who are concerned are saying, look, I'm comfortable with someone make you know uh, saying when the petrol and diesel cars are going to go you know and and with some people making some of these actually really difficult decisions and um i'm then i will adapt you know but i'm not uh, you know i'm not i'm not able to do that so are we you know are we ready or at what point are we ready um and do we have leaders who are brave enough to make very unpopular some of these decisions will be hugely unpopular mm much more unpopular than a plastic straw yeah, um, yes. yeah. <laughs> so um you know how do how do we encourage them to to do that i think the citizens assembly is an interesting um concept where you get people together to make um and oversee very unpopular uh decisions that are unfortunately necessary mm. and i think there's a whole generation um led brilliantly by Greta Thunberg, just the school strikes, I think, are very powerful. And I think there's going to be a whole generation of sort of 16, 17 year olds who have been striking at school and it's kind of embedded in them now. They, they really care and it's their future. 
And I have great sort of hope and positivity in that younger generation of activists who are going to make a big difference. We have 12 years, so if they're 16 now, I think they can really get going in the next couple of years. But I think political will is massively important. And I do think it's, it's changing. I think people are being shamed into taking notice. People that definitely look the other way, I think, are now having to, to address some of these issues. So if we're talking to developers and architects and professionals in the, in the environment, one of the big messages is to, to educate it and yourself and, and talk about it. And the other is to sit there and think, you know, I, I can't create a design solution for drought and hunger and mass migration. And, um, you know, and, and so I need to think about what I can do within, within this conversation I'm having about this particular project that will mitigate my impact on. Yeah, and I think the conversations are definitely happening. There are people, there are architects, brilliant <coughs> architects who care passionately about this. So I think it's just finding ways of, of getting their voices heard and just having a conversation about clever use of materials and the fact that not all materials are created equal when it comes to embodied carbon. Yeah, I think it's, up conversation. it's celebrating those projects as well and saying this yeah. is lead groundbreaking. It's kind of innovating. It's moving to the way we want to go, either within the local environment and how they've dealt with kind of the disruption and engagement of the communities and made it a much more seamless approach or the way they're building with, you know, looking at whole life carbon and going, it's accessible and almost writing clear case studies that aren't set on the shelves going, you know, one developer must share this knowledge and go, you know, we're all selling houses, we're all building houses, but we've done it this way and this is how to, not we've done it this way and you can't have it. It's, it's not that way anymore. You know, we've got to move to collective thinking. Architects are very siloed, landscape architects the same. We all kind of go, well, this is my project. And it's like, but if we open it up, yes, we probably get a little bit less of the financial pie, but we, we create a much richer design. And I think going forward, that will create the financial impetus to do it. Um, so sharing knowledge, I think, is clear, clear mm. you know. And in a celebratory way, which I think was the, the real um, success of the Extinction Rebellion movement, it felt very celebratory, actually, as well as very serious and an incredibly important point. It felt, when you were there, in one of the sites in London, it felt like a celebration of the power of people. So we need to change what we award, possibly, what we celebrate in our in our projects, what we celebrate in architecture and in landscape architecture and in public space. That would be an amazing start. That sounds quite controversial in itself, but definitely that would be a brilliant place to start. Yeah, because you, you almost want the David and the Goliath. You want the guys that can do the Bloomberg building and have untold finances to create this beautiful, like, um, environmentally friendly building and then the guys who've planted a tree in a neighborhood or something quite humble as that and just created a catalyst for conversation and a sense of pride because that's starting to enrich the smaller communities and i don't see why those two can't go up against each other you know they're not going to give the same photographs or the same kind of profile but they're having an impact and i think that's what we're not valuing is how you create the impact give people the confidence to be part of the conversation so rewarding impact not just design yeah, which looks at the full life cycle of every project. It's not just build it and run. And I think that's, again, we're moving forward. We're build, doing build to rent schemes, which the developers have to be invested in. 
It's not just throw them up and sell them and run away. Mm. And I think that word impact is really powerful, actually, because that does suggest um, something beyond the moment of the picture and the application to a competition and winning an award. It's the impact of what you're doing long term. So I think that's a really brilliant word to consider. Well, that just leaves me to thank you guys for talking about this today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. If you like this podcast, you should check out our upcoming Festival of Place on the 9th of July in London. Go to festivalofplace.co.uk.